You are listening to National Security Law Today. I just want to kind of pick up a little bit on what you're talking about, connecting, you know, the Bush doctrine to Trumpism, right? Because you're comparing and contrasting one was more adventurous and the other one is more isolationist, right? But there's kind of like a through line when it comes to presentations to the public, right? Mm-hmm. Something that we're grappling with today is, frankly, the false narratives that Republicans are sowing with respect to the election. There were grumblings uh, in the past about the Bush administration and how Bush lied in order to bring us to war. It's murkier than, okay, well, he intentionally told lies that he knew were, were lies, right, in order to lead us to war. But now we have people who are in positions of, of serious power that are telling lies that they know are lies in order to lead the public to believe one narrative or another. What can we do about this, right? Like, this is alarming to small d- Democrats, right, people who are, are champions of democracy and, and believe in a robust two-party system where, okay, well, you know, we at least believe in the facts and we can argue about the policies about how to address those facts. Now, we can't even agree on the facts. What can we do about this? And is it, it you know, am I, am I really seeing a through line between, okay, well, we can misstate the intelligence because we know eventually we can, we'll be able to find the WMD to Joe Biden is not the duly elected president of the United States. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure I think that, that the through line actually takes us back to the question that Elise was asking a minute ago, that just as the death of expertise was a result of the Bush administration's failures that was exploited by Trump. You could argue that the death of truth you know, in politics was rooted as well in the Bush administration and its false claims about Saddam's weapons program and its certitude and bullying of those people who disagreed. Now, we're all aware of the bumper sticker that existed back in the mid-2000s, Bush lied, people died. I am of the view that Bush really believes that he was telling the truth. He believes what he was saying. So I suppose to that extent, you can say Bush did not lie. The question though is that you're getting at is, is this a distinction with a difference? Is there that much of an important difference between Bush sincerely believing that what he was saying was accurate and happened to be wrong, which now Bush will blame on the CIA for leading him astray? and Trump's willful lies. In fact, I, um, when my book came out last year, I went on Meet the Press and, and, uh, and I talked about that distinction and basically said in the end there wasn't much of one. And a former Bush official just jumped on me right after the program was over, basically saying, how dare you refer to George W. Bush and Donald Trump in the same breath? I, I understand that there are very, very important distinctions in character between those two. But anyone who suggests that the Bush administration clove purely to facts in the run-up to war in Iraq, and that if they did not do so, that that's only because the intelligence community led them astray rather than their own wishful thinking about certain things, and that that, therefore, is meaningfully different from the Trump administration saying that, you know, COVID will go away like a miracle, that there's going to be, you know, election rigging like you've never seen before. I mean, it's, it's a I happen to be doing a book right now, a new book on the post-Trump presidency Republican Party. And so it explores these issues of, of, you know, willful falsehoods and conspiratorial thinking that the Republican Party has descended into. Trump was 
back when I was hanging out with him on the campaign trail in early 2016, already saying, you know, they're, they stole Iowa from me. They stole Colorado and Wyoming from me in the caucuses. And they're going to steal, they're going to try to steal the election from me. And sure enough, in 2016, he claims that 3 million people from Massachusetts crossed the border into New Hampshire. So, you know, that's in a lot of ways, there were reasons to believe that Trump would be doing what he's doing. We've never quite seen anyone lie as fluently from the Oval Office as Donald Trump has done. But the appetite that people have for hearing what they want to hear and rejecting what conventional sources uh, have told them surely has its roots in the Bush administration, which, by the way, and I'm happy to talk about this, Lisa had mentioned that, that she had some interest in talking about it, if you guys want, the media's role in this, because, I mean, the media, you know, very much led us astray. Yeah, and- I mean, what happened to the idea of the fourth estate? And, and But more importantly, I mean, I think one of the things that you're doing in this book is you're explaining some of these sort of inherent infirmities in that idea that you know they really are serving as a check i mean you guys rely on sources right what did they do or not well, do? so in a lot of ways the failures of the medium uh, in the run-up to war elisa are very similar to the failures of the bush administration i mean this i happen to know that in the all of the days of the Bush presidency before September 11th, when Ari Fleischer stood at the podium as press secretary for the White House, he did not receive one question, not one question from anybody in the White House press corps about al-Qaeda, about terrorism, about imminent attacks. I mean, this was on the mind of the Clinton administration and been on the mind of others, but the media was as clueless as everybody else. And they were deeply surprised and chagrined when, when 9-11 did happen. They felt a kind of sense of shame and responsibility like the intelligence community and members of the Bush administration did, because after all, the New York Times, for example, is headquartered in the city where, you know, was, that was the locus of the attacks, and many of them lost people that they knew there, and were resolute to make sure that this would not happen again, on top of which, just from a, you know, crass media perspective, they didn't get the scoop, you know, so so they're all leaning into the notion of, of a new attacker, and uh, now I, I say they're all. In fact, there were some, most famously, I think the heroic reporters of the Knight Ritter chain who were uniformly skeptical of all of the claims of the Bush administration that Saddam had these elaborate links to al-Qaeda and Saddam had this big weapons program, et cetera. But my publication, the New York Times, as well as the Washington Post, uh, with some notable and important exceptions, was pretty credulous. And they were pretty credulous because they wanted the scoop. They didn't want somebody, you know, the Hal Raines didn't want um, to read another Bob Woodward scoop that uh, his paper should have gotten. And the other factor is that some of these reporters were familiar with Saddam from the old days, from the bad old days when he was committing atrocities against the Kurds, against the Shia. And they well remember all of that. That was their institutional memory of Saddam. And they themselves took the deductive leap that a guy who would do that to his own people might well do the same thing to America. Now, that actually is a huge deductive leap. I mean, dictators don't often do to the greatest superpower on earth what they've done to their helpless people at home. And yet that was part of the groupthink that informed some of the media's credulousness in the run-up to war. You know, I I wanted to ask you when you were looking at all these details, and I mean, there were things I I didn't realize, frankly, uh, the numbers of human sources, and you do a really good job of of explaining who they were, what their motives were, which is such an important thing to excise from sort of any 
story and pull it out, really, really get that forward. Will you feel like looking back on it now, there was ever a single point in time where something could have changed and the war could have been avoided? Yes, there is one very particular point in time. I mean, there are others that, you know, just hypothetically, if at any point Donald Rumsfeld said, Mr. President, this is a lousy idea, and uh, or Condoleezza Rice, th- maybe that would averted war. I hate to pick on Colin Powell because Powell was actually the person who stood alone and warning the president of what could happen. But it's also true that the Secretary of State, he enjoyed a level of popularity that no one else in the Bush administration had. He had a credibility with the public and with the Democratic Party that everyone else in the Bush administration lacked. And so when Colin Powell delivered this speech to the UN basically saying, here is the evidence, the hard, cold evidence that Saddam's got weapons. Tom Daschle, the Senate Minority Leader, said to his fellow Democrats, look, I know you don't believe uh, Cheney, but surely you believe Colin Powell. Now, a month before Colin Powell was to give that speech, Bush came to Powell and he said, Colin, you know, I think I'm going to do this and I want you with me. Are you with me? That was Powell's opportunity to say, actually, Mr. President, to tell me the truth, I think it's a bad idea. I think going to war would not be a good idea at all. If he'd done that, he probably would have felt duty-bound to resign. If he had resigned, his senior staff would have resigned also, I know, because they actually had talked about doing so you know, in the months preceding. If they and Powell had resigned, then Tony Blair's uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs, Jack Straw, would have resigned, I know, because he told me that he would have. If Straw had resigned, then Blair would have faced a vote of no confidence because two ministers had already resigned in protest of, of um, uh, uh, the decision to go to war in Iraq. He would have lost, have been kicked out of the parliament. And now you can imagine what the what the media narrative would be. It would be, holy cow, you know, the, um, Blair is out, or um, uh, Colin Powell is out. Meanwhile, Um, Hans Blix has his weapons inspection teams in Iraq, and they're not finding anything. Now the media, you can imagine, would look at that and say, and and by the way, why are we going in anyway? I mean, everything would have ground to a halt had Powell said, Mr. President, I don't think it's a good idea. Instead, as he told me, he said, look, you know, the the truth is uh, they call me the reluctant warrior. But if you go to war, I'm the guy who knows how to fight the war, which is true. But President Bush did not ask him how to fight the war. The president asked him how to sell the war. I just would love to give a little bit of context for some of our younger um, listeners who did not grow up in the Bush era and, you know, probably witnessed a lot of high level resignations in the Trump administration, right? That didn't actually grind anything to a halt at all, right? President Trump had. I believe four national security advisors in four years and had two secretaries of defense and then an acting one at the end. But lots of people resigned following the contest around the election and it really actually kept propelling things forward. Can you like talk a little bit about, you know, maybe the erosion of resignation of senior leaders probably since the Bush administration to today? Sure. Well, I mean, it's, you know, Bush very much prized loyalty and to his credit. And this is one thing that, you know, to me is a meaningful thing about Bush that people loved working for the guy. He did not blame others. It it just wasn't his way. He tended to be considerate. And so 
the people who were around him tended to stay around him. The, the flip side to that is he often prized loyalty above all else. And so he would get people who were loyalists and who therefore didn't necessarily tell him things they didn't want to hear. There was a big turnover in the 2004 election, a year after the invasion of Iraq. But the most significant of the turnovers was that Colin Powell, the one guy who was not totally on board, the one guy who expressed his doubts about Iraq, who wasn't a total team player, except, of course, his fateful speech to the UN, was bounced and was replaced um, by Condoleezza Rice, who was the ultimate Bush yes person. And it took fully two more years before the Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, was ousted by the president. Really one of the most disastrous feats of omission, I think, by Bush in the whole Iraq misadventure to keep Rumsfeld on for as long as he did, given how divisive and even corrosive a force that he had been. But Bush had just kept, didn't want to fire him because he figured if I do it, then I'll just be handing the critics what they want, which is not exactly the way one should be thinking about these things. But it's, but you know, the, but by and large, you know, what we had here was an administration event that had been, as I referenced before, very, very experienced, but it was kind of the wrong sort of experience. Donald Rumsfeld, for example, he'd been Secretary of Defense before. We'd never had a guy who'd been Secretary of Defense twice, you know, and, and the problem was not that Rumsfeld didn't have a great resume. It's that there was a big hole in his resume. He hadn't been in government in like 20 or 25 years. He had not engaged on the issues, you know, the way that, that one would have liked. All of the others had been, you know, they were essentially naysayers of the Clinton administration with its focus on, again, things like terrorism, and were instead focused on the great powers. Uh, and they as well brought their old biases, as Cheney did and others did, um, regarding Saddam Hussein. So it's a very interesting, you know, to me, leadership lesson to look at this group um, because they were, as I say, consummate professionals on a certain level and deeply, deeply lacking on other levels. And the final thing I should say, you know, that I, I also hate to pick on Condoleezza Rice because I mean, she was a woman surrounded by all these, you know, alpha men. And she was, you know, people were dismissive towards her, circumnavigated her, Rumsfeld in particular. But she also was someone who wanted to keep all that conflict from the president. And so when there were disagreements, as there often were between Colin Powell and Cheney and Rumsfeld, she didn't let the president know about that because she just felt like the president didn't want to hear bad news, didn't want to hear about conflict. And that it was her job to bring a consensus product to the president instead of saying, you know, the pres Mr. President, I know you may not want to spend your afternoon listening to, you know, two guys yelling at each other, but we've got a real, real difference of opinion, you know, on, on certain key matters relating, for example, to Iraq. Her failure to do that is, was a a, a huge dereliction that very much had its consequences in the route to war. I think another thing I want to uh, compliment you is that when I pick up these books, they don't, and I mean these books generally, like they're never quite like your writing, to be blunt. I mean, your prose is amazing. I'll just, you know, to those analysts, referring to the murky papers, to those analysts, the murky paper project reeked of first customer service at its most obsequious. Who the hell writes like that? I mean, that by itself is a reason to pick up the book and read it. It's also a reason why once you, you pick it up, forget all the retrospective inevitability and all that, and the way you end chapters, which how do you even do that in nonfiction? I don't know. That is some special thing. But 
really, really amazing. We're super glad that you came and you talked to us today. I know Yvette has one more question, so I'm going to let her ask it. I would just love to hear a little bit more about some of the interplay between the U.S. government and the U.N. and our coalition partners. There, there was an awful lot around the speech you referenced on the February 3rd speech by um, Secretary Powell that persuaded the rest of the world to get on board. Can you just talk a little bit about where that came from and what the result was? Sure, that I think that that um, there's also maybe some connective tissue between Bush and Trump when it comes to our allies, because while President Bush certainly paid lip service to the notion of alliances, said he wanted a coalition, he wanted it entirely on his terms. It was very much of his view a view pushed by Rumsfeld and Cheney that, as Rumsfeld would put it, the mission dictates the coalition, the coalition doesn't dictate the mission. In other words, no one tells us what to do. We know what our interests are and we're gonna do what we're gonna do regardless. We sure like you along for the ride and uh, we'll do our best to accommodate your concerns, but in the end, we have to do what we have to do. And that's you know not entirely dissimilar to uh, President Trump's belief that you know, our allies are to be seen and not heard. But there was an effort to, in, in the run-up to war, to get our allies on board. And, and, and I do, as you say, spend some time in the book talking about Bush's attempts uh, with Germany and with France and with Russia. But Russia had its own economic interests with Iraq at stake and also was kind of intrigued by the notion of um, us getting stuck in a quagmire, kind of like they had been uh, with Afghanistan in uh, the 1980s. France was just appalled by our um, insistence that Saddam was an evildoer who needed to be taken out. And Bush had lost faith with, faith with uh, Schroeder of Germany, who also wanted a peaceful outcome. And so that's, you know, there, there was a lot of pro forma effort and a lot of deal cutting to get UN votes, including from smaller countries, African nations, et cetera. The coalition of the willing was kind of this vaporous, almost straw coalition of people who like would contribute flashlights and things like that, but, but not actually ground troops. We had the Brits and we had the Aussies. And uh, beyond that, no one else would contribute real military power. And so that meant as well that, that they didn't have a stake in the outcome and were quicker to condemn it. And I think that, that this stands in marked contrast to Bush's father, who put together the most remarkable coalition really in, in history in going after Saddam in the first Gulf War. And the way he managed to do that was that um, he understood the limits of the mission. And the mission was not to uh, dethrone Saddam, as it were, but simply to take him out of Kuwait, where he had no business being. Uh, that's what people signed on to. And Bush Sr. understood the limits of that. Not enough of them wanted to sign on to what they saw was a misguided uh, mission that could have all of these consequences that would ripple throughout the Middle East and um, tried to talk Bush out of it, uh, tried to talk him down from it, and then ultimately pulled away from it. I like that, contributed flashlights, but it was about like that. And everybody who wanted in, a lot of people who wanted in there, were, they wanted something in return from the United States, which is really kind of incredible. So I do, before we let you go, I do want to know what is next for you. I know you have something cooking right now. You mentioned it earlier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a, at least it's a book about the post-Trump 
presidency, Republican Party. I don't want to say post-Trump because I think Trump still has a stranglehold over the party. It'll, Penguin will publish it. They published my Iraq book. They'll publish it in September of 2022, just before the midterms. And, and what the book in particular is focusing on is the party's uh, efforts, if they're making any, to disentangle itself from the serial falsehoods and conspiratorial thinking that gave rise to these baseless claims of election fraud that in turn uh, metastasized in the riot at the Capitol on January the 6th. I was there at the Capitol that day, and and, uh, um, and it's, you know, what I experienced and what I saw has very much informed my thinking about the party, particularly as it tries to divest itself of the notion that that was a meaningful um, event, and, uh, you know, an attempted insurrection, and instead to embrace, continue to embrace Trumpism. And so it's not, it's not a terribly happy topic, but I do think that the, the GOP is really at a hinge point right now. And what takes place over the next year and a half or so in the lead up to the midterm elections is really going to help us decide whether we have a robust two-party system, whether a Republican Party as we know it will descend, you know, um, irretrievably into this kind of, you know, populist demagoguery, whether a third party will split off. I think, you know, we won't know all of the answers by the time my book is published but a lot of them are taking shape before us. The ouster of Liz Cheney, which is something that I've written about in the New York Times Magazine and spent a great deal of time covering for this book, is a kind of canary in the coal mine, I think, for the party and for its seeming inability to accept the fact that the, the guy they wanted to win uh, didn't win. And that given the fact that they have lost six of the last seven popular votes in presidential elections, they might want to think about broadening their base instead of playing to it. It's fascinating. All right. Well, Robert, it was awesome to have you with us. And I want you to come back when you finish the next book. Our guest today was Robert Draper, author of To Start a War, How the Bush Administration Took America into Iraq. For our listeners, we will hyperlink vendors of Robert's book and his bio, as well as his Facebook, Twitter handle. And if you wish to, you can follow him so thank you very much. Thank you for writing this book. I hope that everyone who has just come into the new administration who would like to avoid anything that would have consequence to decent Americans would take some time and read this and maybe heighten their skepticism and decide that when they see a piece of evidence, you know, there's a jury instruction that is given in criminal cases. And it, what it says is if you could construe this with guilt or with innocence, you must construe with innocence. You're commanded if it's an equipoise to go one way or another. And I, I think maybe on some level uh, that needs to be understood by people making decisions that uh, take young men and women to war. So anyway, I'm glad you did this. I would also, I would just like to say from a different uh, critical lens, these events happened 20 years ago. You know, we're all pretty familiar with the outcome and yet you managed to achieve narrative tension <laughs> in this book. So just from that standpoint, it was a pleasure to read. Um, I love books where 
even though you start from the beginning, you know what happens. It's still like you want to know the details and you provide a lot of really great insight without being boring, without dragging along. It really, it really clips along. So please go and check it out at Start a War. We just want to let you know as we slowly ease out of the pandemic and we take out our masks only if you are vaccinated, but that we are going to continue to deliver content to you so that you grow your knowledge of the law legal opportunities, and all events that affect national security law. Remember to hit that subscribe button on your listening app of choice and be sure to send us comments and feedback. We do want to hear from you. You know where to find us on Twitter at ABA NatSec. You can send us an email at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. Standing Committee on Law and National Security will do whatever it can to keep you informed and give you context on fast-moving national security law developments. Don't forget that the lawyers hosting this podcast are here in their individual capacities and not on behalf of any agency or company. We'll see you next week. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy. 